Hi, everyone. My name is Miles Surrett, and I serve as the Assistant Director for Leadership in the Center for Student Engagement at George Washington University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership Podcast, which is presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. My guest today is Dr. John Dugan. John serves as the Program Chair for uh, Higher Education Programs in the Undergraduate Minor in Leadership Studies at Loyola University of Chicago. Prior to his academic appointment, he worked in administrative positions in higher education at the University of Maryland and the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. John serves as the principal investigator for the Multi-Institutional Study of Leadership, and he also has a book coming out in February 2017 titled Leadership Theory, Cultivating Critical Perspectives. Welcome, John. Hey, Miles. How are you? Oh, good, good. So uh, just so we can get to know John a little bit better, we're going to start with a regular segment that we do called Rapid Fire. So I'm going to ask John uh, a couple of big, silly questions here and going to limit him to 30-second responses. Are you ready for your first question? I am. 30 seconds are on the clock, huh? Okay, great. So, John, what is your definition of Midwest nice? <laughs> I think I am the definition of Midwest nice, unfortunately. Uh, Midwest nice is uh, showing up at University of Maryland College Park, having grown up in the Midwest, walking around campus, and having your supervisor tell you to stop saying hello to everyone who walks by because they think it's <laughs> creepy. Uh, and Midwest nice is always, um, I think it's probably a little bit of like about po um, like politeness or mm -hmm. the politics of politeness. So I might say to you, Miles, um, you know what, we should absolutely go and get coffee. And I know and you know that probably won't happen, but uh, <laughs> it's nice to just put it out there, right? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the fake invitation, that's a good one. In the South, uh, we say bless his or her heart as, a, as that's a, sort of the, our way of, you know, you can say basically anything about someone if you say bless his or her heart afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's in the exact same vein. Like, if, if I wanted to end this podcast right now, I wouldn't say I have to go. I would say, you know what, I better let you go, Miles. That would be Midwest nice. <laughs> I don't want to take up too much of your time. Yeah, I don't want, I don't want to put you out too much, so I'm going to go ahead and let you go, Miles. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So, John, you recently returned from leading a study abroad trip to Rome. So what is the hardest part of summering in Europe? Uh, yeah, well, so we were in Rome, Italy, and Loyola actually has a campus there. It's gorgeous. Um, it is a former nunnery, though. So um, I don't think we could quite use the term residence hall. That doesn't do it justice. We were definitely in mm -hmm. dorm rooms um, mm -hmm. that required mosquito netting on the windows and we were in like Ikea-style bunk beds with uh, no air conditioning. So I would say that uh, that is easily the absolute best part about studying abroad in Rome, um, the sweltering heat. <laughs> <laughs> Was the mosquito netting necessary because there were no screens on the windows? Yeah, yeah. So they don't have screens. They have shutters. And mm -hmm. um, so at, without it, you just get eaten alive. Okay. Well, that's and we, good and we warn our students about it, and they don't believe us. And then we get there, and then everyone's trying to improvise a version of mosquito netting. Uh-huh. Oh, sure. Yeah, that sounds awful. Uh, <laughs> Other than that, it's amazing, though. Other than that, I can't complain at all. It's an awesome learning experience. Other than being hot, it's a wonderful it's Yeah, a wonderful I mean, I generally lose, like, five pounds just from, like, sleep sweat alone. <laughs> sleep sweat, the new, the new hot diet. Uh, okay, so uh, just so we can be as topical as possible, can you tell me about how Pokemon Go impacted the trip? <laughs> I'm laughing because um, I have still very little understanding of what Pokemon Go is. 
let alone that it launched in the middle of uh, the experience. And my only sort of connection to it was having a group of uh, three of the students in my class literally take off across a piazza uh, at one point in the middle of sort of a conversation because there was some like uh, jiggly poof or something. There was something over on the other side that they needed. Um, so th that's about the extent of my uh, point of reference. Jiggly poof. Is, are you a Pokemon Go person, Miles? <laughs> I am not. I am not. Uh, I am. Uh, I am literate in the world of Pokemon, but I uh, am not a Pokemon Go person. So I, I just don't understand it. So, like, who puts them all over the place? Like, my partner and I went to the the theater this week, and literally there was like five of them on the guy in front of me as like right before the show began, and I just I couldn't understand like who put them on this man, and do I have like Pokemon on me, and how do I get them off? <laughs> Do I have Pokemon on me? I find it unsettling. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, do I have Pokemon on me? Okay, so I noticed in my crack research for this podcast that you engage in a fair amount of consumer tweeting, and I believe I observed while lurking your Twitter feed that you were successful in some communication with American Airlines. So my question <laughs> is, does consumer tweeting work? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm an expert at it, but I have had some, I would say, uh, relative success. So in that instance, I had bought the extra leg room for a flight. I'm like 6'1", and so you know that always helps. And I uh, got on the plane, and I was in that like trick seat where you pay the extra like leg room, but then you get a wall in front of you. And so um, American Airlines was kind enough to refund um, the fee that I paid. So I do think it works. I mean, and I like it from a standpoint of, you know, if you were to get on the phone with some of these big corporations, the likelihood of ever getting anything done would be probably minimal. Um, mm. And they tend to be more attentive. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's public facing, right? So, you know, if you, if you put that up, it's, uh, it's, you know, bad information for them. One time, my mother-in-law posted a negative review on Amazon of their service or a product or something. And they spent the next month just like begging her with just increasing level of incentives to take her review off. I couldn't believe that it had been, you know, it had been that powerful, but wow. That, that yeah, they, they were like, they wanted to give her four of whatever she bought for free or something. I can't even remember. It was pretty amazing. Well, I mean, like when we talk about these huge corporations, sometimes that's the only way to get their attention. And so, you know, in, in this case, it was definitely self-serving. But I do like the idea of it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a you know, it's an interesting idea. I uh, maybe need to maybe need to engage in some consumer tweeting as well. The the southern part of me says like, oh no, better not complain. Just put my head down. Yeah, I have to get over my Midwest nice. And if you note, my uh, consumer tweeting is usually in the form of a question versus an outright like, why'd you do this? <laughs> it's usually like, I sure would have liked something a little bit more spacious. <laughs> would have been nice to really be able to spread these legs out. I would have uh, loved if I would have been able to have some more room. <laughs> we could keep going forever on this. That, that would have been ideal. Uh, okay, so I know storytelling is, is something that's really important to you. So why do you think the culture of storytelling is so strong in Chicago? Wow, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think it's increasing um, like across the U.S. Uh, right now. But I think Chicago has a huge, huge, huge history um, you know, as a metropolitan area for storytelling. So if you think of it as like 
the Homeless Studs Turkle and um, you know, This American Story and all of these different sort of venues where people are sharing, you know, what is, uh, you know, usually I put in quotes, the common person's uh, narrative. And so I think that history means that as it became more um, popular in different spheres, it just, it has taken off a, a ton here. And so I'm a part of a, um, uh, a group called Outspoken, which is a, is a queer storytelling uh, group in Chicago that I had uh, the pleasure of telling a story at uh, earlier this summer. And, and to me, it's just an incredibly powerful vehicle for social connection. Hmm. All right, John, we ask it in every podcast, what is the best book about leadership? And let's just go ahead and take leadership theory, cultivating critical perspectives off. You know, we'll just assume that that is the, that starting in February, 2017, that will be the best book, but you know, <laughs> I don't know not, about that. I got to get to February, 2017 yet. first, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. Uh, so, you know, to me, I, I hate any kind of like, Best, but I can maybe share two things that are um, have been really stimulating for me right now. So uh, I, I'm really sort of um, beyond. I, I guess I have. A, I would say I have a scholarly crush right now on Sonia Spina from NYU. So anything by Sonia is something I think it should be mandatory reading for folks doing leadership development, leadership education, leadership training of any kind. So. Um, her most recent book is probably um, the one she did with Mary Ulbine on uh, examining um, relational practices in leadership. And so it looks at uh, how to advance relational leadership research. Uh, and the other person I would mention is Matt Salveson, who's a, a critical leadership studies person. And he had a book that's not new, but is, um, I think, really provocative called Metaphors We Lead By understanding leadership in the real world. And um, I think it's just, it's accessible, but really deep and complex in terms of challenging uh, how we think about the concept of leadership um, at its like most fundamental level. So those would be the two I'd throw out there. Okay. So I'm going to ask you, do you have a, a scholarly crush on anyone or um, someone's re writing right now that you would put on that list? Um, I am a really big fan of the leadership book that I'm reading at the moment that I in, am enjoying the most is a book uh, very cleverly titled called Leadership by a uh, American literature professor. Well, mm, I take that back. A literature professor at West Point named Elizabeth Samet. And uh, it is, uh, it's a Norton anthology technically, but it's, uh, it's really incredible. It pulls excerpts from uh, a really exhausting study uh, and pulls excerpts from literature. And she does uh, introductions to those excerpts that are all, uh, she categorizes them by different leadership themes and, and sort of allows you to go through the book how you want to, depending on what you're looking for. Um, and I find it, I think it's a really incredible resource for leadership programs. So that's what Very I'm reading cool. now that I'm enjoying. Sorry to turn the tables on you. No, no, I, I enjoyed that. Uh, just makes me, uh, you know, just makes me nervous. Uh, <laughs> so, um, okay, so our next segment is Higher Ed, Two Truths and a Lie. So uh, I'm going to provide, John, two true stories from higher education current events and one lie, and John's going to have to try to parse out the lie. So the theme this time is European controversy. So very appropriate after your mosquito netting summering uh, that, that this would be your theme. Um, 
So the first option is, in early July, a lecturer at Cambridge protested Brexit by attending a faculty meeting naked. So that's one option for you. Another option is, in arguing for a more holistic learning experience, Queen's University and Belfast President and Vice Chancellor Patrick Johnston recently drew ire and was snubbed by students during commencement for saying, and I quote, society doesn't need a 21-year-old who is a 6th century historian. That's another option. Okay. And then the final option is, Students at the Technical University of Munich recently organized an on-campus anti-England watch party during the Brits' Euro 2016 match versus Iceland following the tiny island nation's upset victory. The celebratory 54 Germans booked a flight to London and received a citation for lewd gestures and trespassing outside of Buckingham Palace, and the university subsequently issued a formal apology. So those are your three (laughs) options. We've got... We've got a naked protester, we've got 6th century historians, and we've got uh, rowdy, uh, rowdy Germans. Okay. Um, wow. So this is like the segment of the, the podcast that makes me the most nervous. I am terrible at these kinds of things. So um, I, I don't, I, I think I have a lot of like uh, academic <laughs> logic, but very little common sense logic. So this is like practically a riddle for me. Um, Okay, I'm going to rule out the lewd gestures just because I know how serious Europeans take out, uh, take you know, their games. So I'm going to rule that one out as as being true. And then, um, uh, you know, the Brexit was like so important, but I'm not sure. But the British are so. I mean, they have their own version of like Midwest nice. So mm. it's like what British stoic. So I'm going to go with that as a lie because I can't see the nakedness on the part of uh, the British. How'd I do? All right. So uh, you were correct uh, that the 20th, uh, that the uh, 6th century historian, that was, that was true. Uh, unfortunately, the, uh, well, you know, depending on, depending on your perspective, <laughs> uh, the lecturer at Cambridge did protest a faculty meeting uh, n- by attending naked and uh, wow mm-hmm, that that did happen yeah as a matter of fact a colleague of mine whose favorite portion of the podcast is hired to truth and a lie uh, and sent me that she was like you have got to use this uh, so that one uh, is also true I, I made up the thing about uh, about the Germans and the Euro uh, 2016 soccer that was business, I mean so. you were really convincing on that one the level of detail was really strong <laughs> Mm. Well, you know, that's uh, that's the trick, you know. I can't believe the first one was true. Like, that would be a faculty meeting that would be interesting. Yeah, I... Uh... <laughs> It's hard to imagine doing that. Uh, there were there were also, at least from what I read, there were no outcomes to that, right? Like the, the <laughs> right. rest of the faculty weren't like, okay, we're going to opt back into the European Union. We've got, you know, we can make that call. Uh, you know. yeah, that sounds more like rebellion, not revolution. <laughs> yeah, it's an odd form of protest, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> anywho, so that's our two truths and a lie. So. The next segment that we're doing is a new segment this week. So we're going to call, so this one is called Getting to Know John. So this is designed to help, uh, you know, we did rapid fire to kind of help understand you as a person, and this is to help understand you as a professional. So who is the best leader you know and why? Um, okay, so I'm going to flip this question a little bit as well, if you don't mind. So um, 
part of my like goal in life is to get us out of a sort of leader-centric mindset. And so I, I think that we can think of leaders, um, but when I think of the folks that I'm most interested interested in or intrigued by right now, it's folks who are doing collaborative collective work. Uh, so I have a research study that's qualitative, and each of the individuals in that study blow my mind. So folks like Ibu Patel, Felice uh, Gorordo, um, uh, Mary Morton, but every one of them would talk about the collective work they're doing and that they are but sort of one piece of a greater whole. Uh, and so for me, you know, it's not sort of these symbolic brand leaders, and it's also not, you know, these positional role-specific leaders. It's these folks who in their own spheres of influence are accomplishing a ton uh, in community with others. Okay, great. So what led you to student affairs? Yeah, this is like the question that everyone, uh, I feel like, has um, – their own little sort of narrative story around. And I think mine's probably more similar than different to, to others. I, I didn't in, intend to end up in student affairs uh, or higher education. I was uh, at John Carroll University, which was just this tiny uh, Jesuit institution in Cleveland. And I um, went and did an internship overseas working for the State Department in Guyana at the embassy there and thought that that was my path and came back and was like, right. hell no. Um, don't want to do that, and had a good mentor who said, well, you could go get a graduate degree in like a counseling type field and continue the work that you've been doing on campus until you figure out what else to do. Um, and then I ended up falling in love. So I um, found a field that felt really values congruent and um, felt like home. So uh, that's kind of how I stumbled into student affairs. Okay. So my, my question then is, what led you from student affairs to academia? Ah, so I was um, out and I, so I worked for about six years as a full-time administrator in, in higher ed at um, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and University of Maryland. And when I showed up at UNLV, I was in this incredibly um, theoretically grounded division of, of student development. And so, I mean, they sent me five books to read before I got there, everything from like mm. Egan to... Um, shoes work. And so um, I found that like engaging in the work led me to so many more questions than I could actually answer within the parameters of my job. So when I went back for my PhD, I thought, well, maybe I'll end up going the faculty route um, or maybe I'll end up back in, in practice. But um, I just felt compelled by the research and found a different sense of energy from being in the classroom and teaching and um, one of my good uh, colleagues, Craig Slack, often um, teases me that I'm a pracademic, that mm -hmm. um, I, I merge, I'm not a true academic, I merge um, practice and uh, academic research. And I think that's fair because almost all of the questions that um, drive me are ones that relate back to the world of our work. And so what does it mean for how we actually do the work of um, education? So I think that's how. Hmm. So uh, who do you think that, uh, that aspiring student affairs practitioners or you know, seasoned student affairs practitioners should be reading in order to best understand the field right now? Yeah, I think, um, gosh, our, when you think about our field, like we, we sort of are a field that co-opted um, and brought in and was grounded in other fields, um, whether that was like counseling psychology or um, psychology in general or you know, policy and, and education in general. 
Um, so I do think there's foundations of our field that are important. Um, and it's just, I think right now is an interesting time because it's just burgeoning with um, scholarship uh, at a rate and pace that uh, is just wildly different than even like 10 or 20 years ago. Um, so I think there's lots of great folks who, who are writing. I think in our field, people like Lisa Abus um, really uh, trigger a lot of thinking for me. I think she's absolutely beyond brilliant. Um, folks like Susan Jones do the same. A lot of the identity-based work is connected to the work I do. And so when I read that, it's really, it really motivates me. But I'd also push that. I think one of the ways to strengthen our field is to go outside it. So the people I read, um, and I think others should be reading as well, are ones who are drawing in from interdisciplinary contexts literature mm -hmm. that informs our work. So I feel like we could actually probably do a better job in the field of training and graduate programs folks to be um, good stewards of interdisciplinary learning um, rather than just sort of a core set of knowledge. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like that core set of knowledge can lead you down a, a narrow path and can, you know, I, I think that I think that that's a, I think that it's a great point that you need thinkers that aren't immersed in the exact same line of inquiry that you're in to help, you know, help sort of inspire thoughts from outside. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think too, you know, we are a community of practice that is incredibly diverse in terms of um, function. And so who I read in leadership education should be more than the college student leadership literature. It should also draw on the leadership studies literature. And, um, what someone reads who's working in a counseling center or a wellness center or recreation should draw from the disciplines that tie to them as well, um, rather than staying narrow or sort of only accepting a, um, like a set parameter of what, what defines the core. Hmm. All right, so if you could participate in one leadership program at one higher education institution, which would you choose? Ooh, that is a tough one. Um, Okay, so in the research study that I work with, the multiple, the, I can't even say it right. Uh, I'm not sure it's my own research study. <laughs> uh, the uh, Multi-Institutional Study of Leadership, or the MSL, um, we have engaged with, at this point, over 300 colleges and universities in five countries. And so I've had like the pleasure of um, seeing a whole lot of different programs um, and programs that are really doing extraordinary work. And I think you know, each program brings its own unique sort of institutional mission and feel to it, and each program um, focuses on uh, different aspects. So um, you know, if I had to pick one, uh, or maybe I could pick two, if I, if I had to pick one, I think um, the work that Dr. Julie Snyder is doing um, at Bowling Green State University is just phenomenal. So I went in and did a uh, consulting project to look at the impact of the Revo Academy of Leadership and so it's a, it's a four-year program, and it combines curricular and co-curricular, and it really just, I mean, when you hear alum of the program talk about it, they're in tears because it's so transformative uh, and critical to their, their experience at the university. And I think it's because it really embeds um, critical self-reflection, um, efficacy building, dialogue, all of the high-impact practices that we know uh, make programs successful. Hmm. So, maybe on the maybe on the flip side of that of that coin, uh, I feel like leadership is a 
is a concept that occasionally causes students to roll their eyes and maybe people out in the world as well, you know, because I think it's been co-opted in so many, you know, so many different ways. So why do you think it is that there's sort of this, this natural inclination that people have to sort of be like, oh, leadership? And what can student leadership practitioners do to build meaningful programs and really combat that? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I think we have to lean into that challenge, and I love that you even asked that question to begin with. So I was one of the students who, coming through my undergraduate experience, felt that leadership was a dirty word. So for me at my institution at that time, leadership was – people who were elected typically from popularity or um, an unhealthy, uh, perhaps, drive um, for power to, into positional roles. So there was nothing um, that was related to human capacity building. Leadership was the position. And if you didn't get into the position, there was no investment by the institution in you as a student. And so for me, leadership, um, I saw leadership as folks who – uh, we're doing incredible work around community service, who we're doing in, like, incredible work around uh, racial justice, uh, community development, and none of it was acknowledged as falling within the parameters of what constituted leadership. So to me, that eye roll or that, that hesitancy is really natural because we're socialized from a very young age in the United States about what leadership is and isn't, and that dominant narrative um, is, is not most people's stories. Um, or you think of folks who are leaders um, who abuse their power and who wants to be associated with that. And so I think um, maybe the way that we address that is we start to name it and we start to find ways to acknowledge that leadership uh, often becomes this romanticized term. And just because you slap the term leadership on it doesn't make it inherently good. I remember um, a NASPA conference, gosh, it was in Chicago, so I'm guessing it was around 2010, um, where some, my students and I were presenting on um, to a very large room, probably about 150 people on some results for some research. And we talked about how most leadership living learning programs did not have an impact um, and that just because you call something a leadership program does not a leadership program make. And we had a couple folks stand up and walk out. Uh, they were mm. so frustrated. And so I, I don't think we can uh, help students walk through that uh, de-romanticization if we can't do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're going to transition now to our next segment, which I'm calling Six Big Leadership Questions. So this is the segment where I'm really going to put John to work. So I'm going to ask him six big questions about leadership, and then we're all going to siphon wisdom from John's brain. So really, really test him out here. So question number one, how would you convince students that leadership theory matters? This is the sex segment of the program that scares me because I'm like, any wisdom I have is largely a diffusion of everyone around me, not my own. But um, I'll, sure. I'll, I'll give we're, it a go. We're all that way. You know, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm, sometimes I'm in class and students write things down and I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I, I don't know that that's true. It's, I, I was just thinking out loud. Um, <laughs> okay, so let me take a stab at this question. So um, how would I convince students that leadership theory uh, matters. So I, I think for me, theory always provides the underlying guide for sense-making. So how we make meaning of the world and how we make meaning of this concept of leadership is a function of the theories that drive it. And I think we typically privilege academic 
uh, concrete formal theory like the social change model or servant leadership or situational leadership. And we don't recognize that even if someone is not um, using an academic formal theory, there is some type of informal theory operating typically subconsciously um, that is driving their understanding of leadership. And so um, the goal then becomes not to continue to privilege these formal theories because oftentimes they, they, they don't reflect the diversity of experiences, the diversity of identities, the diversity of, and complexities of what leadership actually entails, um, but we can't allow the informal theories to remain subconscious. We've got to bring them to consciousness and then find a way to create sort of like a Frankenstein mo monster of... Um, or an eclectic approach to, to leadership theory. So for me, I think um, leadership theory matters because it's the driver, um, but we have to help students see that even without formal theory, there's an informal theory driving what they're doing. Hmm. Okay. So following up on that, why do student leadership practitioners struggle to effectively teach theory in an engaging way? That's a tough one. Um, well, let me, let me maybe tackle this from a couple different like, angles. So I think, you know, w one, oftentimes uh, leadership educators are delivering curriculum uh, as co-curriculum outside of a traditional classroom. And so there's some boundaries around whether the, can, can you ask someone to read this or are we teaching this um, or co-constructing knowledge around a, a theoretical idea um, in a way that is... Uh, too similar to a traditional classroom. So I think there's some boundaries around the platform of delivery that get in the way that we have to think more creatively about. Um, you know, and it, if you start with, oh, here's a theory um, versus let's unpack and let's surface the informal theories that are driving, that's kind of a radical change that I think would enhance how folks could teach theory. So when you start with surfacing someone's existing knowledge, it situates them as a knower in their own right it validates how they're, how they're thinking and perceiving what leadership is, and then it offers a connection to a theory versus situating a, a formal theory as um, correct, right, or truth. I think um, a second piece of this, uh, I might draw on uh, my good colleague, uh, Dr. Julie Owen, uh, and her work. And so Julie sort of studies what does it look like in terms of preparation uh, institutionally of the delivery of leadership education. And some of her research shows um, how few leadership educators actually are prepared. So um, when you think about the number of folks coming into our positions that have actually had a formal leadership class that incorporated theory, um, it, it's pretty minimal. Um, so lots of folks have, you know, a professional uh, course on, like, the profession of student affairs or higher ed or an organizational leadership class, but organizational leadership might focus more on organizational dynamics and theory, not leadership. And, uh, pro, you know, professional issues in higher ed or student affairs might focus more on management, budget, and, and supervision. Um, and I think that means that someone doesn't have exposure to theory. And, you know, sometimes when I survey folks myself, part of what they talk about is that the theories they're introduced to are so antiquated, they don't even have legitimacy in the broader leadership studies marketplace um, or literature. And so I think exposure to content um, prior to assuming a role um, is probably part of the difficulty as well. You know, you teach what you know, and if you don't have that knowledge, you're going to rely on something else. Mm. 
Yeah, I wonder if that's a a depth of knowledge issue, right? So I, I think there's a lot of folks who understand on the surface level, and if you ask them, hey, can you explain the social change model of leadership to me? I think that they could, you know, I think that they could explain, you know, seven C's. Here's what we're looking at. But I, I think that maybe they would, I think that they would struggle with, you know, engaging with that content and thinking about it, uh, you know, and thinking about it deeply. And, and I think when you're not engaging with that and you're not uh, really uh, spending spending deep time with that information and thinking about it day in day out that it's going to be a hard it's going to be hard to then subsequently go and lead workshops and lead seminars on these things i mean if you think about academics and the amount of time that goes into preparing to be a faculty member and how you know and how the depth of knowledge there uh, is is really extraordinary and that's what it takes to really teach in an engaging way that's going to be at the standards that our students expect um, so I, I think that I think that that's certainly part of it. I think too that part of what you're teasing at there, Miles, is that it's not sufficient to just have knowledge. So to acquire knowledge around leadership theories is one thing, but to actually be able to be serve as a critical learner and engage with the deconstruction and reconstruction of a theory, to situate it in context of other theories, to understand how it either reflects, replicates, or disrupts a dominant narrative um, is a different set of, of tools. And so I don't, I don't know where folks get that. I think there's lots of really talented people out there who've done a lot of work on their own. Um, but I don't know. I, I might put some of the onus for this on our graduate programs who may unintentionally reinforce really um, based understandings of leadership to begin with. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's something to consider. There, there, are certainly not, there are certainly not classes in most graduate programs that are specifically directed towards, towards that. Um, and I think maybe the graduate program is saying, well, you know, if you're really interested in that, then that's where your assistantship should be, and you exactly. should be engaging and learning in that way. But it's not necessarily formal learning, and being an assistant in a leadership office could mean a, a lot of different things, and it a lot of times doesn't mean engaging with theory on a regular basis. It means, you know, administrative work, and it means uh, student development work, and it means mm -hmm. a lot of things that aren't theoretical learning, you know. You know, and I think, yeah, you know, this might feel t a little tangential, but I, I hope it doesn't, but I think, you know, sometimes my students get frustrated with me because I, I typically go into the classroom with a, a very specific bias that I say up front, which is that, whether it's the student development class I teach, social justice, or a leadership course, my goal is not to give them a breadth of information that they acquire. It's to teach them how to learn and create a context in, we can, in which we can co-construct the process of learning, because that can then be replicated as theories change and content change, as information change. I don't want them leaving with you know, a sticker that says, I have learned the social change mm. model. That doesn't help advanced leadership education, but their ability to reason around theory in general um, and to, to be comfortable with the ambiguity and the lack of answers, that's, I think, a much more powerful learning experience. Hmm. All right. So question three. That was obviously a big question. Question three. Uh, 250 campuses have participated and 300,000 student responses have been recorded. So what 
fundamental changes have occurred as a result of the multi-institutional study of leadership. Wow. So um, first of all, I have to give huge um, shout-outs to Dr. Susan Komavez and Dr. Julie Owen, who have helped shape that study since its inception. And um, the, this, this, the study itself is predicated on a partnership model. And so all of those institutions have reps that have worked with the study. Some, and in some cases, they've been participating since 2006. So um, anything that's been achieved by the study is a function of each of those participating campuses and all of the, the, the students who've written dissertations and scholars who've written articles on it. Uh, I think if I had to sort of distill um, you know, fundamental contributions, um, there's probably three. So first and foremost, um, when the study started, it was really about um, the social change model. It's evolved, and we study leadership um, theoretically from a, a broader standpoint. We still study the social change model, but it's a little broader than that now. Um, at the time, folks didn't necessarily equate the social change model um, as a leadership theory beyond college student leadership development. You know, it's not included mm -hmm. in texts on leadership, um, yet it has this kind of application across sectors whether it's nursing or um, public policy, um, but it's not part of the, the dominant dialogue in leadership studies. And so part of the goal was to validate it as not just a conceptual model that a bunch of people thought about and um, you know, came up with, but to say this is empirically measurable, replicable, and a theory in its own right. And so I think you know, a fundamental contribution because of people's willingness to collect so much data has been our ability to do that. Um, I think secondly, uh, when we started the MSL, uh, it was a time where leadership education programs were booming on college campuses. Um, I would argue that they largely targeted positional leaders, so folks who were student organization mm -hmm. presidents, um, uh, RAs, people in functional roles more than the campus broadly. So part of our goal was to say uh, enough polishing diamonds and it's time to start looking at how is leadership development more than a byproduct of a college education, but the responsibility to purposefully cultivate um, for all students. And I think by um, looking at students in general instead of just positional leaders, it started to implicitly drive that point home uh, in terms of uh, the importance of uh, leadership development for all students. And I think the third piece of it is it's given us um, a lot more um, to work with in terms of evidence-based practice. So. You know, as a leadership educator um, prior to MSL, and its actual inception was, was from my time at UNLV when I was struggling to design and deliver a program for which there were a lot of best practices, um, but very little empirical evidence to support them. So it's kind of like you would take some spaghetti, throw it against the wall, and see what stuck, and hope that it made a difference. And so um, our ability to identify high-impact practices that matter, like um, the infusion of service learning, powerful mentoring, ex mentoring experiences, engagement in off-campus organizations, particularly for students of color, um, the infusion of dialogues uh, about and across difference um, as one of the single most powerful predictors of gains in leadership capacity. Those are really important. And I think it also helped us to understand that it's not just then the pedagogy, it's that you don't just develop leadership capacity in a bubble. Um, Along with it, you have to develop other leadership-related developmental outcomes like efficacy, like critical thinking skills and complex cognitive reasoning, like resilience and social pers perspective taking, 
that all of that um, becomes a map for people to play with as they design and deliver programs. Hmm. Yeah, I think the impulse that you had at UNLV that led to a lot of this, I think, is uh, is a real one, and I think it's one that uh, I think it's one that is very natural in a in a world where information is is diffuse as as student leadership programs. So, um, well, and I can so, share. Can I like throw a question back at you? Oh gosh, uh, sure. So one of the things that we've, I think we struggled with with MSL is how you do diffuse that and disseminate that information in a way that actually um, enters practice. So for example, for over 10 years now, we've been talking about the power of dialogue. Um, and yet we still see leadership education programs that struggle to infuse dialogue as a primary pedagogy. And mm-hmm. so I'm just curious, you know, do you see any vehicles or have you seen ways in which um, people are playing with this concept of dialogue as uh, a core component of program delivery or, uh, or even struggling with how to infuse it? I think that conveying that information the best that, the best that you possibly can ultimately depends on the, the inputs that are available at individual institutions. You know, I mean, I think that if you've got if you've got an institution that's really not engaged, uh, not engaged nationally, and there's a lot of turnover that's occurring at that place, and maybe it's a pretty insular institution, you may not find outlets to where mm-hmm. information is really being sought. You know, there, I think that there's a lot of I think that there's a lot of program maintenance occurring where people are where people are just trying to run what they have and run what they know. And, uh, you know, and so I think that part of, you know, part of what you're talking about, about effectively conveying information and particularly talking about the power of dialogue and having that as a core component in, in curriculum is that, you know, if there's places where people just aren't seeking information outside or they don't have a clear path or a clear understanding about how they're supposed to be seeking that information, I don't know that they're going to seek it. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know i don't i don't have a you know i don't have a good answer for that other than to you know engage with nafa and acpa and make sure that if, you know uh, entities like the student leadership programs knowledge community have access to that information because that is reaching a really critical mass of yep. of people who are engaged uh, who are engaged in this information i mean we see for our webinars for instance that that uh, that uh, my area also manages, we see the amount of difference that we see in engagement with those webinars between whether the, the email goes out to the SLP KC and whether the email doesn't go out promoting that webinar is night and day. I mean, mm-hmm. it's you know, probably legitimately 25, 25 times more participation if that email goes out versus not, you know, because yep. people – you know, people just don't know, and it's you know, and everybody's communicating via email. You know, it's a really powerful tool. I think that, uh, you know, engagement's a, an interesting thing, which I think transitions nicely to question number four, which is, what is the power of social media in, in leadership study? Oh, this is a great question. So, um, I, I think there's two things I think of when you ask that question. One is, um, how do we 
come together collectively and how do we disseminate information. So my students in my leadership class sometimes balk because I require them to tweet throughout the semester. So there's some parameters and there's a whole assignment that involves tweeting. Uh, I don't think you can talk about contemporary leadership and social movements without talking about the power of social media. So if you look at any major social movement in the last, let's say, 10 years, um, whether it was Facebook or Twitter, um, there is some, um, I think, credit that has to be given to the use of that, those technologies to actually achieve goals. So I think of um, there's this great movie that I encourage everyone to watch called The Square. Um, and it follows the revolution in Egypt, the multiple revolutions in Egypt, and it tracks how um, when the government shut down cell phones, when the government attempted to prevent communication um, and social mobilizing, uh, it was these um, tools that allowed people to then still aggregate, collect, and act. And so I think um, whether it's from that standpoint or the standpoint of the ways in which it, it connects us um, much more fully uh, in terms of interdependence with one another, uh, I think we have to be talking about it. Hmm. Okay. So I want to transition so we can talk a little bit about the content from, from your upcoming book. So what are effective applications of critical theory in student leadership programs? Yeah, so this is a bit of a, a tough question, and I, I might pinch us a little bit here that I don't think there's many. Um, I don't think there are a lot of programs um, that are specific, specifically student leadership education programs who are doing critical leadership studies right now. Uh, and I don't mm -hmm. think that's a bad thing. I think it reflects uh, the evolution of, of um, how student leadership programs have sort of um, grown and changed and stretched over the last uh, 20 years. Um, but I think there, there is a potential for a whole lot to be done there. Um, and this is where the pinch comes in. I think that our good colleagues in places like multicultural student affairs um, and intergroup dialogue and intercultural work are already doing critical leadership studies. They might not, just might not call it that. Um, so, you know, when I think about the application of critical leadership studies, it begins with what we talked about earlier. So the deromantization of, of leadership. So are we starting with a premise that it's inher leadership is inherently good? And if so, who does that automatically alienate? Um, who isn't then interested or coming into the fold for, for a conversation? Uh, I think that when we take a critical perspective, it's really about shifting from um, reflection uh, and critical thinking to critical self-reflection. So it's no longer just about self-awareness, um, like you have in almost every contemporary leadership theory, and it's no longer about uh, just critically thinking about why things are the way they are, but situating that critical thinking and self-awareness and grounding it uh, on a premise that um, we are socially stratified by design. So acknowledging that there is going to be socio-political and economic um, systems at play uh, that either privilege or oppress. And so that when we enter the conversation from that point, it then changes, I think, what we're talking about, who we're talking about, and how we're talking about it. I don't know if that was too like, um, like meta. <laughs> Miles, feel free to redirect me on that question if it was. No, no, I thought that, that was that was exactly what it, that was exactly what I was what I was shooting for, and I think that that's 
I think that's wonderful information. I think that's a challenge. Uh, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a, a challenge to rethink, you know, rethink what we're doing a little bit. So, uh, all right, question number six. Yeah. How would you discuss the role of power and control in leadership study? Uh, I love this. I would put it dead center. So, um, mm. I think that one of the reasons that we don't have more critical dialogue is that we have a body of literature that in some ways has um, shifted towards these pro-social ideals that are incredibly utopian. So um, whether it's the social change model, servant leadership, relational leadership, transformational leadership, almost all of these contemporary theories are predicated on some type of service for the common good or some type of social change. Um, and they're often explicitly stated in these models, but to what end? Who's defining um, what that common good is? Who's defining um, how ethics play out? Uh, because we know that there oftentimes something that is ethical may not be legal and it may not be just, or it may be just, but it may not be ethical. And so um, I think we have to problematize all of those things rather than sort of uh, riding the like uh, fanboy version of leadership, which has like, I always envision like uh, a unicorn flying over a rainbow over a building and, you know, like someone's riding it and they're like, yay, leadership, uh, now drink this Kool-Aid. And I think that's a problem um, mm. because none of those theories really address power in a meaningful way. Um, they allude to the need for change, but are they talking about the way that power flows within organizations and systems? Does it talk about the way in which authority operates and how we have to both manage authority um, and navigate authority uh, within our own particular spheres of influence? And so I think power, um, teaching students how to map power organizationally, um, societally, teaching them how to understand both um, the points uh, in which pressure can be leveraged um, and asserted versus uh, when to release pressure uh, within a system uh, to contribute to, to, to change is important. And I, don't, I don't know that we do that. I think sometimes we do a disservice to students who we send out and say, yes, shrink the hierarchies and um, you know, let's believe in these giant visions um, that are important too, um, but what's the realistic element of those? Like, we're not going to end racism tomorrow. We're not going to end hunger and homelessness tomorrow. They're important issues that we should dream about um, and aspire to. But if we don't also understand the way that power operates to keep them in place, we may default ourselves and opt out of continuing to work on the issues. So to me, power absolutely must be at the center of how we're teaching leadership. And, and I would argue that most of the theories that we teach don't put it anywhere um, in an explicit way. It's just a, a convenient sidestep. Mm. Well, you want to be inspirational, right? I mean, it's hard to, uh, you know, I think that most, I think that most folks who are, engaged, who are engaged in student leadership programs want to be inspirational and they want, you know, they want that image of, you know, the unicorn flying over the rainbow on top of the, you know, they want people to walk out feeling really good about, really good about their prospects. And I think what you're talking about with power and control ultimately is about just being practical, you know, and, and giving people a sense of, you know, of this is how, this is how leadership, this is how leadership really functions. It's not, it's not always, you know, huge picture aspirational mm -hmm. things. Sometimes it's day to day, 
you know, it, sometimes it's day to day navigating a, you know, navigating a hierarchical structure in your in your work, you know, and that's a form of, you know, that's a form of leadership too. But that's a very practical form of leadership, and it, you know, I, I think that I think that too much of one way or another, I suppose, can be a problem. Yeah, and I, I would say, it, it, you know, who wants to come to the doom and gloom shop of leadership, right? <laughs> so <laughs> that office is not going to get a lot of student visitors probably. But I think that what you're touching on is that it's developmental. And so as mm. students become more complex in their reasoning, they're able to see the entrenchment of these problems. Like you don't jump from, um, you know, like here's a problem to here's the systemic embeddedness of this problem. You have to sort of... Um, coach and give opportunities to folks to see how all of that plays out before they're able to then really um, fully understand and disrupt it. Um, and so I think what you're saying is it, it's both and in that we need to have sort of the aspirational, motivational components of it to, to pull people in, but we can't rest there. If, if that's where we stop and we don't get to the pragmatic realities that you're talking about, then we've probably done a disservice. Hmm. It's sort of like we're going to name the status quo and how entrenched it is, but we're not actually going to teach you how to do anything about altering it. Um, that's, that's what I feel like uh, the lip service comes in. If, and you know, we have data that backs that up from the MSL where we looked at um, the relative impact of uh, programs of different duration and complexity. And part of what we found is that there was a, a threshold on uh, stopping out that long-term multi-year programs by and large did not have the same impact as a one, one-time, one-shot program. And when we really dug into those findings, part of it was because these moderate duration programs like a class or something that lasted a year and the long-term programs, which were multi-year, typically never increased the complexity of the content. So students were just being exposed over and over again uh, to the same sort of um, level of depth, which in turn had an effect of um, oversimplifying leadership. Hmm. Well, those are our six big questions. They certainly were six. Uh, they certainly were big. So, <laughs> thanks everyone for joining us for the uh, NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the. NESFA Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community, and thanks so much to Dr. John Dugan for joining me today. John, my final question, if you had one bit of advice to give to uh, aspiring student leadership practitioners, what would you pass along? I would absolutely tell folks that this is such important work and that um, to stay really invested in it means to be participating in things like the Leadership Educators Institute, um, all of the programming from folks like NASPA, ECPA, uh, working at, at going to places like the International Leadership Association, because it's through that exposure to content and thinking and training and our own development that we actually have a greater uh, chance of having uh, an effect on students and the structuring of our programs in ways that matter. Okay. So thanks again, John, for joining me. It was truly an honor, and thank you for being so generous with your time. Uh, MSL 2018 is on the horizon with school recruitment and registration process beginning in March of 2017. Visit leadershipstudy.net for more information. And John's new book, Leadership Theory, Cultivating Critical Perspectives, will be out in February via Jossie Bass. 
watch uh, John's Twitter account, which is at John Dugan, which is D-U-G-A-N 77 for more information. And you can get more information about, uh, about the Student Leadership Program's knowledge community on our various social media outlets, including facebook.com backslash SALead, on Twitter at, at NASPA SLPKC, on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can also find supplemental materials from our podcast on the Tumblr, which is NASPA SLPKC. And you can also connect with me on Twitter at Miles, which is M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, which is S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And you can submit questions to be answered on our next podcast at Podcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we would love to hear about your programs. So please shoot an email to Podcast at gmail.com. John, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, sure.